This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Greg Moyle and Ryan Melton from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. This is not to be seen as personal advice as it is a podcast, but will give you the tools you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Welcome back, listeners. It's been a week for you and five minutes for us. Uh, this, this, this discussion, uh, we're going to talk about accounting. And I'm informed that's a very hard topic to discuss over a podcast, but we're going to try um, because you've got a bit of a background in accounting, Greg, if you don't mind telling us a bit about that. Well, I suppose that uh, I wasn't very good at languages and not that good at science, but I was quite good at mathematics. And my father was an accountant and I thought that what would I do? I suppose not going to be a professional rugby player or professional league player. There's no money in those days. I was born before my time. But, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there was money in accounting, and uh, the accountants always seemed to have a job. Uh, they were the paymasters general, so um, I went to university and did an accounting degree, a BCom, and clearly deluded, thought there was an exciting subject, so I continued on for another two years part-time and did a master's in accounting, All right. and then ended up working for a large accounting, a large corporate, UEB Industries at the time, as one of their... Uh, junior accountants. Uh, I think I was on page five of the organisational chart down the bottom. <laughs> a good place to start. There was only one way, and it's up. <laughs> Left there after a year and joined a smaller light engineering steel stockers firm and uh, got a much broader knowledge of accounting because you're everything from the office manager to the credit controller to the debtors ledger coordinator and and then preparing the financial statements on a monthly and then annual basis. So that was a good experience, I suppose. Uh, But what it meant for me is that I didn't uh, feel challenged by the role and I was looking for something else. And that's why when the opportunity came, I went into the police. And when I went into the police, I was hoping to become a fraud investigator, but the only accounting I did when I was in the police was counting transvestites on K Road uh, and doing my senior and sergeant, senior sergeant and sergeant's tax returns on the public counter. So clearly my role as an accountant in the police wasn't going to be particularly challenging. <laughs> so I went back to the university part-time. Uh, an interesting time because I did it during the Springbok tour in 1981 and uh, trying to attend lectures after doing my shift and when I was on shift, making sure I didn't arrest any of my uh, fellow law students or fellow law lecturers was always a bit of a challenge. And uh, eventually finished my law degree and went, having left the police, into the corporate fraud unit of the Justice Department, which was a kind of quasi-accounting role. But to be able to support my family at the time, I took up an opportunity, I think it was in about 1984, to teach part-time at Auckland University, teaching accounting one, both financial accounting and management accounting. Yeah, no, well, that's (coughs) that's an illustrious background there. Well, so, yeah, there's an old saying, those that can do and those that can't teach. So (laughs) given that I was a teacher, I'm probably not much of an accountant. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, that's why I thought it'd be good to try and put you on the spot. Um, <laughs> in terms of, so a lot of our listeners are between the ages of 25 and 34, and we also have a, um, the majority after that is uh, 40 plus naturally. So, and a, a big part of that is uh, tradies and and people, the plumbers, um, builders. <laughs> I just started forgetting names there. What is there sort of guidance you can give to them in terms of making sure they have, a, I guess, a basic understanding of accounting so if they outsource it, they can recognize issues or they can, I guess, do more of it themselves if it's not too complex? Well, it was interesting. I was watching the news this morning. They had a chap on from Westpac, uh, an ex-politician, Simon Power, who's now the general manager of Westpac, thought they'd ask him if he wanted to be prime minister, but they didn't. And he was talking about how the Westpac Bank were going to support people in business and and um, help them steer their way through this um, post-COVID-19 economic malaise. And what he was talking about is the bank providing help in respect to loans, overdraft facilities, showing them how they can apply for things within the system. The bit that he said that was actually sensible was that actually it's all about cash flow. And any person who's been in business knows that you've got to have more money coming in than going out, otherwise effectively you'll be out of business. So cash flow is king. So how does accounting help with that in respect of a business? Well, I think anyone going into business needs to be able to understand what financial statements look like and where the information comes from to prepare those financial statements. Because in business, while cash flow is king in the short term, unless you make a profit, that means that your revenue is greater than the expenses incurred in earning that revenue you won't be in business very long because you would be making losses. And every time you make a loss, you reduce the capital, the difference between assets and liabilities in that particular business. Years ago, when I was, uh, I'd left university and I was working in the financial planning area, and again, uh, because as you start off in our business, it takes a while to build some credibility in a client base, and I needed another income that was complementary but didn't um, overrule what I was doing. The primary role was my financial planning career or business, um, but I was able to teach part-time at Auckland University, um, initially undergraduate students, and then that evolved to uh, a course that I'd run called Accounting for Non-Accountants, and it was run through the uh, graduate school, and um, I don't know what they used to call it now. It was sort of postgraduate study, but there was papers that were done uh, for people generally in business to get an understanding of accounting, accounting information, accounting reports, so that they could better understand how their business worked. And I used to love doing that. It was a two-day course. I was always uh, confronted by mature people who were keen to learn. And um, over the course of two days, I would um, effectively make the invisible visible for them because 
for many people, accounting is a black art uh, mm. practiced by people without um, any personality, <laughs> um, which is really unkind because when I used to say to people, that, you know, what does an accountant use as, a, as his or her co- what does an accountant use uh, as a contraceptive? And, of course, the answer is his or her personality, <laughs> which I think is really unkind <laughs> as an accountant because, you know, I've got the personality, I, I suppose. But the but it's good because none of the people in the room were accountants and they all laughed at that and, they, <laughs> and it, it broke the ice. And what you're able to do over that two days is really show that business the accounting is the language of business. Accounting basically allows you to accumulate information relating to transactions in your business in a meaningful manner so that you can see that you're trading profitably. Because as I said earlier, if you weren't trading profitably, uh, you won't be in business very long. In fact, you would be reckless and close to fraudulent if you kept trading unprofitably because not only once you eroded your capital, uh, you were going to put your business in a situation where the business could not pay its creditors and its death, uh, and, and the bank and the institutions lent its money in the normal course of trading. And of course, a business that can't pay its creditors as they fall due is effectively insolvent and therefore should stop business. So you taught people how to prepare those financial statements. And, of course, the two financial statements are the profit and loss statement or the statement of uh, financial performance, they call it now, and the balance sheet or the statement of financial position. And the balance sheet is just basically uh, taking a photo of the company or the business at a point in time and looking at, the assets, the liabilities, and the difference between the two is the capital, which basically is the equity of the owner in that business. Just like if you bought a house, the house is the asset, um, the mortgage is the liability, the difference between the two is your equity in that property. And of course, over time, you expect your equity to increase as the debt reduces and the asset grows in value. Uh, a business is much the same, and except the business is earning revenue, paying the costs associated with earning that revenue, the difference, the profit, is either distributed as dividends or salary, and the balance is reinvested in the business to allow the business to grow. Okay, that makes sense. In terms of... Structuring your financial statements. And so do you get a diploma now? If that I'm makes qualified, sense? if that's it. I'll send you a bill. I'll send you a bill. People pay a lot of money for those courses. Oh, I imagine. There's actually quite an interesting website called Udemy, U-D-E-M-Y.com, and it's where people like yourself put together a course and only charge 20 bucks. Oh, I wouldn't be on that course. $20. <laughs> well, the, I mean, if you sell a million, it's not well, bad. But look, it... it it was helping people turn that light on. And it was interesting after the course of two days, people would come away, they'd been sent by their business. And it could be a, a retail business, it could be a manufacturing business, a service industry. A lot of accountants, uh, not accountants, but lawyers would come on that course. Mm. There were few accountants, I always had to watch for them. They were the ones with no personality. No, they were, <laughs> they were the ones who knew all the answers. So I'd quietly find out who had done a bit of accounting. 
and get them on side because they, you know, they were able to help some of the people sort of in the early steps to understand the the jargon or the terminology because we all love to use jargon. Yeah, and uh, you know the police were like that. The military are obs- obsessed with jargon, mm. and we see it on TV, don't we? Now, you know, I didn't understand what PPE was. You know, personal protection equipment. And everyone's going, you've got to have your PPE. Um, so we love jargon. So accountants are really into that. But yeah, actually, the language of accounting is commonly known. We all know what an asset is. You know, your house is an asset. We all know what a liability is. The mortgage is a liability. And the difference between the two is your equity or your capital. So we know it. But just sometimes people don't know what they don't know. And... Uh, I think the people attending those courses, particularly the small business owners, went back and were able to have a much more meaningful discussion with their accountant, either in-house or out-of-house, about the business because they were able to ask the questions and receive the information in a form that they now understood. Mm. Whereas before it was like, you know, the eyes would just start to... (laughs) Shut, you know, the shutters would come down yeah. when someone started talking accounting jargon to them. can imagine. Well, yeah, I've heard that quite a lot in terms of people I've come across and their business hasn't gone well, and usually where they've been ripped off or things have not um, ended up quite uh, beneficial for them, especially when they're relying on someone else to do an aspect of their business when they didn't have an understanding of it, which leaves you open for that sort of behavior where people can take advantage. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons why businesses don't succeed. And sadly, I think in this COVID-19 aftermath, we're going to see a few of those because um, maybe the business plan wasn't as well thought out as it could be. It wasn't robust enough. Uh, When you're in business, you've got to look and say, what is your uh, strategic advantage? Why would people use your product, your service, uh, as opposed to someone else. What's your unique selling proposition? Isn't it USP, another bit of jargon? Mm. And so if you're going into business, you need to understand that, and then you pull together a business plan to decide whether your business is going to be small or large, it's going to employ you and a few people or you and a lot of people. Uh, if it's a lot of people, you're going to need different structures and reporting lines within that business so that you, the owner, you, the major shareholder, have got your finger on the pulse of the business because if you don't do that, it will probably go pear-shaped and a little bit like the general's battle for the plan um, fall to pieces after the first shot is fired. Mm. So I've seen over the years a lot of people go into business and not succeed and they might basically say it's down to this or that or the other thing, but often it'll be back to the that the whole business plan uh, wasn't clearly thought out. They just had an idea and a bit of enthusiasm and a little bit of money, and off they went, as opposed to having a robust business plan. Analogous to someone having a retirement plan, mm. preparing for the future. As we've said before, people spend more time planning their next overseas holiday than they do in planning their future financial well-being. The true is 
true. That's also true of, of business. You know, people think, oh, I've always wanted to own a cafe or a restaurant or, oh, I've noticed this bloke, you know, making a lot of money selling this product or the service. I think I'll go into business. It could even be the tradie who says, well, I think I'll be a self-employed plumber or electrician and drain layer or whatever. Nothing wrong with that. But the moment you step from being employed to self-employed and then from self-employed to a business, these are big steps. Someone who's self-employed is not always in a business. All they've got is bought themselves a job. But there are consequences of being self-employed that you have to wear a lot of costs that you wouldn't wear if you were employed. You've got to do the the marketing, if you like, the business development. Uh, you can't just spend all your time working if you don't put some time and effort into marketing because mm. where will the next job come from? Yeah. So, you know, when you're in business, you're constantly trying to be ahead of the curve and say, well, you know, let's worry about next month or the following month or the month following that's revenue uh, because if the work dries up, the expenses won't, um, but you'll be in a cash flow crisis because there'll be more money going out than coming in. So being self-employed requires a lot more effort than being employed, and sometimes people want to be self-employed because they think, you know, it'll be easy and I'll be my own boss and I can come and go as I like. Well, guess what? They won't be self-employed for very long. Mm -hmm. Um, because their business will fail. If you're self-employed, you work a lot harder than you ever did as an employee. And you don't always reap the rewards from that, but you should. But that's about working smart and not necessarily harder. If you go to the next step from being self-employed to being a business, a business means that you know the business is not just reliant on you, uh, because you have other people working within that business. If you're the uh, business owner or the major shareholder, of course, a lot of your business time will be in ensuring that other people working for you are working effectively and that there are things for them to do. So you might actually spend your time not on the tools, not doing what you enjoy doing, but out there sourcing work for the people you're employing, you become the rainmaker, um, a different role altogether. But in the business, you need to understand how that particular business works and the way of uncovering that is to have a proper functioning accounting system whereby all transactions pertaining to the business are recorded, classified, collect, and then reported periodically so that you can see that your business is trading profitably. You can see that you're able to pay your debts as they fall due, that your working capital is positive, not negative. So a little bit of jargon, the working capital. Working capital is the difference between your current assets, uh, which are your, generally your bank stock and debtors, and your current liabilities, which are your trade creditors, um, and any debt falling due within the next 12 months. If your current assets don't exceed your current liabilities, probably two to one, you are probably in trouble. Mm. It has to be a minimum of one, but you know, two to one would probably be better. 
Uh, if it's less than one, effectively you're insolvent. You can't pay your debts as they fall due, and you should really um, shut up shop. And I guarantee there's lots of small businesses in this country that are trading insolvently. You know, they're basically they're, their current liabilities are greater than their current assets. So in that instance, there with the small businesses, something unexpected happened. What what could they done prior? In terms of what would you include in your business plan and strategy to try and protect against the... Well, if you have a business plan, which is, again, more holistic, the big picture, uh, you break that down into manageable bites. So you might do it on an annual basis, prepare a budget, looking and saying, this is our budgeted sales or revenue, these are our budgeted costs, um, you pull all those together and you'd like to see a positive figure, otherwise you might as well stop immediately uh, <laughs> if you know you're going to spend the next 12 months um, trading at a loss. You probably would think that's a bad idea unless that is part of the business plan because it might take 12 months of trading at a loss to get some credibility, um, some size, in the marketplace so that you can trade profitably in the next year and beyond. Uh, sometimes you, you've got to, uh, you know, to invest to to grow. You've got to be prepared to take uh, a little bit of short-term um, loss to make a, a medium to longer-term gain. Because just because you've opened the door of the business doesn't mean everyone was going to flock in. Your overheads start from day zero, or day one, I suppose you'd call it, and uh, but your revenue won't. Your revenue will take some time. So what you do is you have a plan, which is a, effectively a, a budget. A budget is just a plan for the future, uh, saying, well, this is what we expect to come in from sales this month, next month, successfully the next 12 months, we look at the costs associated with that and we determine whether there's a profit or a loss. If there's a profit, that's great, but does it give us an adequate return on investment? Because again, you know, the whole idea of being in business is to make more money than you would if you did something else, like own the, the property that your business is in, i.e. that you're the landlord, or that the return that the bank is getting, charging you interest, you want to get a better return than that, otherwise you might as well be the bank. Mm. So the budget allows you to look into the crystal ball based on the knowledge you have of the business, and you should know more about the business than anyone else, otherwise you probably shouldn't be in business, uh, looking at the expected revenue matched against the expected cost to give you an expected profit, and does that profit give you an adequate return on investment? If the answer is no to any of those things, you're best to stay as an employee. But the problem with many firms is they don't do that. They just kind of open the door, put the shingle up, off they go, manufacture a product without actually understanding what the costs associated with that product are. So I've seen lots of businesses um, basically sell an item for $10 that cost them 12 well, guess what? You're not going to be in business for very long because every time you sell an item, you lose $2. Mm. Uh, years ago, when I was working the steel stock at Slight Engineering Firm, we had a competitor selling corrugated iron at, uh, at a price we couldn't meet. 
and, and be profitable. So we had to step aside. I'm sorry, I got a call there. We'll just shut that off somehow. I don't know how to turn this thing off. It's off now. Do you want to go back and see? <laughs> Not me. Not me. No one rings me. No, no one rings me. So we, so we had this competitor who was selling this product. I think it was corrugated iron at the time at a price that we couldn't meet and we couldn't understand how that would happen. But the, when that company eventually failed as it did, what we discovered, of course, is that it was selling the product at a, a margin above its cost price that covered its overheads but actually didn't retain anything for profit. So when, when you sell a product, if you buy a product for $10, you can't sell it for 10 clearly. Um, you think, oh, maybe I can sell it for 12 Well, it depends. What are your overheads? If your overheads are... $5, then your cost is 10 plus 5, 15. But if you sell it for 15, what are you doing? You're just covering your costs. You're not going to be in business. You've got to sell it for 15 plus. So it might be 20. Mm. So you buy it for 10. Uh, your costs associated with bringing the product to sale are another 5. And then you need to sell it for 5 above that to be in business. Mm. Okay. So it's common sense, really, yeah, isn't yeah. it? So, you know, any person going into business needs to understand if they're manufacturing a product or providing a service, what the costs associated are with that product or that service. Um, they need to know, you know, what margins they can put on top of that because, again, it's a competitive market. And if you suddenly... Uh, found that that product that cost you 10, uh, that your overheads were a further 5, but you could only sell it for 14, you'd stop. Mm. You'd stop sooner. If you could only sell it for 16, you might not stop, but you might wonder whether it's worth actually being in business because your return is inadequate to cover the cost of capital or to give you an adequate return on on the money you've got invested in the business. So accounting allows you to really dig into the essence of the business using the information within the business, the transactions, to suck this information out and put it in a meaningful form that you can make sane, sound, sensible decisions about your business. So yes, there's a business plan, but there needs to be a budget uh, each year looking at expected sales and expected costs. In the costs, you go right down to what are the components of cost. And as a manufacturer, there's three components. There's your you know, your prime costs, you know, which are all your direct costs, and then, of course, there's all the overheads, both uh, variable and fixed. So your rent is a fixed cost, but your salaries, if you're on doing a commission-type arrangement, are variable. Um, those three components of cost basically um, need to be recovered so that you can make a profit. And they, if you're not making a profit, you won't be in business. So it, it's not difficult to understand if you approach it that way, but... 
So you need your business plan, you need your budget, and then, of course, at the end of each month, quarter, um, six month, annually, you should be looking back and comparing your actual results against your budgeted results so that you can better, if you like, steer or manage your business. So if you're a little bit to the left, you can correct back to the right and so forth. And it kind of gives you um, the ability. It's a bit like driving a car. Uh, How well would your car be driven if you were driving forward but looking in your rear vision mirror? Yeah, not too good unless you're going to hit something, eh? Yeah, so what (laughs) you have to do is, you know, you're looking out the front of the window, looking ahead for obstacles, directions, you know, a better route, and that's called managing your business. But to do that, you need, you know, to have a robust accounting system to produce the reports, both financial and management reports, to better manage and understand your business. What would, in their report, what would be the key? Hmm? I was just saying, that sounds so exciting. I think I'll become an accountant. <laughs> yeah, I'm converted. Yeah, I'm wide awake. And I actually am quite interested in this because, um, yeah, that's the goal, to run a business. Uh, yeah, so you, you talked about three primary categories or three categories within for manufacturing. One, I'm wondering, is it any different in terms of um, the service industry? And the other one would be what would be the key performance indicators that you'd want to keep an eye on to compare the budget to the ongoing evolving transaction list, I guess. Well, with a service industry, the only difference is that you are the product. Mm. Um, I mean, you've got manufacturing where you have to make the product. You've got retail where you sell a product that someone else has manufactured. If you're in a service industry, you are the product. So the two... you know, much simpler business. I mean, uh, the financial planning business that we're in is uh, is a fantastic business because there's no no stock and no debtors. Mm. Uh, they're the two things that really stuff up businesses. You know, if you've got to carry a lot of stock and you've got a lot of debtors, uh, that's part of your working capital, it's their current assets, but you've got to fund that. And that's the big problem for businesses, that if... Um, You've got a lot of money tied up in stock. You're not earning any money from that, and it could actually be costing you money in storage, and it might, in fact, be reducing in value. could get damaged, stolen, become obsolete. And, of course, debtors are a road to ruin. When I worked in this light engineering steel stockers firm and I was the general ledger controller and credit controller and all the other bits and pieces, I had all my... I was keeping my fingers and thumbs on all these different pulses, um, and it was a great way to learn how, how businesses worked. Um, one of the critical things in our business was the management of our debtors' ledger. And at that time, we would have a million dollars worth of debtors, but 75000 was three months or longer, and you were watching those ones like a hawk. And if they wanted more product, they could get it, but they'd have to pay for what they hadn't paid in the past. So you were teaming and lading a little bit, robbing people to pay Paul. You didn't want to lose their business because, um, you know, you were in business to sell a product, and as long as you had a margin in that product and the margin was significant enough, you would be uh, a profitable business. And that was a profitable business. We always had the odd person that made it, 
uh, or tried to make it less profitable. I remember our sales manager at the time got very excited and came in and said, Greg, 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 I've got this great order. You know, it's $100,000 worth of copper sheeting. It's fantastic. It's an indent order, of course, so it's a low margin. I go, oh, yeah, how low? Oh, 3%. I go, well, that's fairly low. Uh, who have you sold it to? Oh, ABC Limited. And my heart sank because ABC Limited hadn't paid us for the last 90 days. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be able to carry that level of debt on that level of margin. If the margin was 10, 15, 20%, uh, you might have been able to do that. You'd factor that in, but not on 3%. And, and of course, you know, he, like many salespeople, thought a sale was a sale when you got the order. For accountants, a sale's not a sale until it's been paid for. Mm. But coming back to that situation of the 75,000 three months and older, uh, after I left, and uh, I left because the company was taken over by a company that no longer exists anymore called the Motor Corporation, who wanted to diversify their operations from car assembly plants to light engineering, steel stockers type firms, um, which I didn't really see as necessarily a sensible move, but that's what they wanted to do. But they wanted to run the accounting system like it was a car assembly plant. Um, and they had an accounting manual that was quite thick, you know, several inches it's many centimetres, of course, uh, <laughs> thick. And uh, and I looked at this, and it was just nuts. I mean, it had no application to our unique business, but they wanted everything to be shoved into that form. It's like you know, a square peg in a round hole. And that was one of the reasons I left in the end of the day. I, w- I carried on for about a year, and it just did my head in. Uh, when I left, I came back like a year or so later, and I was talking to the person who replaced me, who didn't have their finger on the pulse, didn't see it as a personal affront when people didn't pay. I'd go and see them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I remember ringing one bloke at, at 11 o'clock at night. I think it must have started at 9, but 9, 10, 11. Kept ringing him because he kept promising, and then I finally sort of rang him about 1 o'clock in the morning and he was a bit fronted I would ring him. I said, look, I'm sorry, but look, I can't sleep because all the money that you owe our company, I figured you wouldn't be able to sleep as well, so I thought we should talk about it. <laughs> His wife yeah. put a bit of pressure on him to pay the debt, but that, you know, that's the sort of thing you do, to go out and pick up checks. Um, I didn't have the old cell phone in those days. That would have been marvellous. I had to find a telephone booth, and I remember going <laughs> to one place where I was in the telephone booth and I could look at the business, and I could see the manager in his office, and I'd ring, and of course the manager was always out. Um, I'd ring up, and I'd like to speak to Mr. Jones. Oh, who's speaking? It's Greg Moyle from blah, blah, blah. Oh, hang on. Oh, no, Mr. Jones is out. (laughs) Mr. Jones was always out. And on this occasion, when the lady said Mr. Jones was out, I said, well, that's really surprising, because I'm in the telephone box across the way, and I can see him in his office. Tell him I'll be there in three minutes. <laughs> and it'd be nice if he's got a check for me. I mean, you did that sort of stuff to get paid. The new person coming in was just getting paid to do a job and wasn't interested. That million dollars debtors ledger was still there. The difference was 750000 was three months and older. Mm. If you don't chase the money, people think you don't care mm. and they won't pay you, especially in that sort of area. So 
that would resonate, I'm sure, to a number of the smaller businesses, you know, the, the plumbers, electricians, the carpenters, whatever, the smaller tradies, that you know if you don't chase your your debtors, they'll think you don't care and they won't pay you. It's not they don't want to, it's just the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And, of course, at the same time, your creditors are probably chasing you. Mm. And that's one of the worries in this current environment. If you don't get paid, how do you pay your creditors? And it then becomes a little bit of a domino effect. And uh, that's why I think it's good that the government are, are looking at ways of supporting small businesses, that the banks are talking about ways of supporting. I hope they follow through because talk is cheap. Mm. But if they do, we'll all get out of this. If they don't, it'll be a bloodbath. Yeah, for sure. And uh, on the note of bloodbath, I mean, you, you talked about how how that, that company sort of went under and didn't last. Is there common trends or mistakes that you, you notice in business owners or the way they run their books or well, that leads th- their downfall? I think bigger businesses have more robust financial systems. Smaller businesses struggle a little bit. And back in that day, that was the before the advent of the personal uh, computer, uh, you know, the, the software that you can get on um, PCs these days. Uh, you've got all these other uh, amazing systems um, like Zero um, uh, and yeah, you know, all those Henry, things um, are available. So uh, the smaller business sector is much better resourced today than it's ever been in the future with software and accounting applications that are uh, not only cost-effective but easier to understand and run. Uh, You see that often in clubs and societies where the treasurer, who's not an accountant, is able to use a a computer system to basically keep track of all the transactions and present reports showing uh, this is an income and expenditure statement for the month or quarter, and this is the financial position of the uh, the club or society at that time. Um, so things are a bit different today than they were back then, but I think businesses fail for the same old reason that businesses have always failed, that a lack of planning, uh, a lack of management, but the other thing that's happened, of course, is that maybe just the time has come. Mm. I mean, who would have thought, and this is a classic, you know, uh, in the f- photographic area, uh, the company Kodak, which was one of the leading companies in the world uh, producing cameras, film, uh, technology to support that would fail. Why did it fail? Because of this digital mm. Uh, photography, you don't need film anymore. Mm. You don't need to have it developed. That whole business model just disappeared and they didn't see it coming. Um, so that's the other thing. The, the, you know, the, the movement within the 21st century has been uh, so rapid that organisations have a window, but the window might close or disappear and their business is no longer relevant. Mm. Um, if you're a business owner, you've got to be able to look ahead and see that possibility and look at how you're going to restructure uh, your business to survive in the new 
normal. And, and you think about those uh, tourist businesses in Rotorua and Kaikoura and Queenstown, suddenly the whole business model has changed very, very quickly. Yeah. And their ability to be on their toes to look at how they can uh, reshape their business so that it can survive or hunker down or hibernate until things return to another new normal mm. um, is, is dependent. And, and to be able to do that, watch your first port of call. You'd look at your financial systems to uncover the information to tell you what your cost structures are, what your revenue expectations are, and look at what's changed and what can you do to um, to survive and then move on. And some will and so, some won't. Mm, sad reality. And uh, also a good time to, to bring it to a close because this is, the, I guess, the overreaching uh, picture of what's involved in counting in terms of understanding the strategy, making sure you're planning, having a good margin, as well as um, innovating and, and staying with the times. So I, I hope the business owners that were listening to this found it valuable. Um, and by all means, oh, Greg wants to say one last thing. Well, I think for business owners, uh, having a relationship, a good working relationship with your accountant in-house or out-of-house is absolutely essential. Uh, you need to embrace them. You need to love them. You don't <laughs> want to distance yourself from them because they have access to the, and information. If you like, they've got the key to unlocking uh, what makes your business unique and successful. And they can help you better understand the financial reports that they will give you uh, that offer you an insight into how your business is performing now and how it's likely to perform in the future. Yeah, and I imagine there's a lot of conversations that you have you may not want to have them because I suspect they're very bottom-line conversations and you may just want to be in your business, excited, passionate, doing what you want to do, but those those conversations are essential, so that's why we thought we'd do a podcast on it. And so, yeah, speaking of business owners, we've got to thank uh, Jordan Greville from NZ Audio Editors. And, yeah, old Greg's good to have back. Hopefully people listen to the whole uh, podcast this time. And uh, any questions, once again, ryan at oneplan.co.nz. I'm more than happy to answer them.